I'm Frank Andorka, Editorial Director of Solar Power World Magazine. Welcome to another edition of Solar Speaks, Solar Power World's podcast series that gives you the opportunity to hear from the industry's biggest newsmakers in their own words. Today we're talking with Peter Lynch, who has worked for 35 years as a Wall Street security analyst, an independent security analyst, and a private investor in small emerging technology companies. He has been actively involved in following developments in the renewable energy sector since 1977 and is regarded as an expert in this field. Lynch also sits on the board of advisors for the Principal Solar Institute and has recently released a paper on feed-in tariffs. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Frank. Can you give my listeners an idea of how you got into the solar industry and where your expertise lies? I originally got involved in the industry back in the late 70s after graduate school. And I was working as a Wall Street equity analyst and started uh, in that role to research, you know, the solar industry. After that, I became an investment banker and helped to finance a number of renewable energy companies, you know, through IPOs. And then finally, as a private investor, I started up a number of companies in uh, PV technology and also in project development. So uh, my expertise basically lies in, in both technology area, in the PV area and solar areas, and also in the financial area, so it's a combination of both. And so let's dive into what you talk about in your paper. You hear the phrase feed-in tariff tossed around a lot in other countries like Germany, the United Kingdom, and I know Japan is putting its own FIT uh, program together to jumpstart its solar industry, but many Americans have no idea what a feed-in tariff is. Can you explain what that is? A feed-in tariff is basically a policy mechanism which is designed to accelerate the growth of renewable markets and investments in renewable energy technologies. Producers of energy are paid a set rate for their electricity over a fixed period of time, 10, 15, 20 years, depending. This interjects a key element of any investment policy, and that's certainty. So part of the, the fit is then paid to producers to do, decrease over time as the market grows. So it creates certainty, and it also creates growth in the market and certainty for manufacturers as well as investors. How do countries determine what an appropriate feed-in tariff is? Well, basically, they have to look at the situation in each of their individual companies, uh, countries and the rates that they're currently paying. Uh, in Germany, when they started their feed-in tariff back in the early 90s, their rate, retail rate of electricity was probably north of 20, 25 cents uh, U.S. And what they did is they set it initially at 60 cents. So it's going to be an initial premium. And the idea is if it's properly designed, i.e. it goes down every year as the market grows, then as the feed-in tariff price goes down, the industry grows. And as the industry grows through larger and larger quantities, the price comes down. So, in fact, at the beginning of 2012, for the first time, the German feed-in tariff is less than the existing retail rate of electricity. So, a properly designed feed-in tariff, which was done in Germany, has proven itself, without doubt, to do exactly what it was designed to do, drop the price and also increase the certainty for manufacturers and users. So you've used the phrase several times, Peter, a properly designed feed-in tariff. How do you go ahead and properly design a feed-in tariff? Well, the key 
to a feed-in tariff is to make sure that it's not a subsidy. A subsidy is defined as something or an industry getting a benefit from taxpayers. A German feed-in tariff has zero input from taxpayers. It is not a subsidy. That was a properly designed feed-in tariff. An example of a not properly designed feed-in tariff was Spain. Now, a lot of people say that, oh, there's this feed-in tariff in Spain, and it, it collapsed, and it was a failure. Well, it was not properly designed. A portion of that feed-in tariff was from tax revenues. So part of it was properly designed, and part of it was a subsidy. When the real estate bubble collapsed in Spain, the politicians cut back on the feed-in tariff. So a lot of false advertising or false comments that the feed-in tariff somehow caused the collapse in Spain is ridiculous. The feed-in tariff in Spain was a casualty of the economic collapse. The subsidies in Spain were probably one-tenth of one percent of the Spanish GNP. So obviously they're tiny. They were a casualty of the Spanish collapse and had nothing whatsoever to bring in, you know, Spain into economic collapse. Well, that's one of the arguments that I've heard is that, oh, well, the, you can't have a feeding tariff in the United States because it'll collapse the economy, which is the recovery right now being as fragile as it is. And you're saying that's, that's not true. Well, it has, if, if you designed it improperly, you would be affecting taxpayer revenues, taxpayer um, money. But if it's properly designed, it has nothing to do with subsidies. Therefore, it would have no effect on the economy, except in the long run it would create more jobs. And number two, it would not be on the table for politicians to make short-term decisions based upon very little data and cut it back and drop it and move it, because there's a lot of people that don't want this to happen, obviously, all the competitors. I don't know many industries in history that would volunteer to help their competitors. And the number one impediment to feed-in tariffs in the United States is the existing infrastructure and the existing utilities. Can you dive in depth a little more about that? I'm, I'm curious to hear, um, because one of the things that I've that I've heard people say is that utilities do are sort of standing in the way of developing solar because it, they refuse to sort of give up their central control um, and move to a more distributed generation model. Is that what you're talking about? Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, there was just a, part of the problem is, and it hasn't. It doesn't necessarily start or end with utilities. You know, what happens is when an industry has a dominant position, they defend it. You know, there's an argument that you can't do subsidies because it disrupts the marketplace. So you can't use that in solar. Well, first of all, you shouldn't use subsidies. You should use a feed-in tariff. And number two, it's a ridiculous comment to say that solar is, is not going to work in the marketplace. The electricity marketplace is run by utilities, which are monopolies. Monopolies don't work. It's not a market demand and supply in a monopoly. So that's a ridiculous state. Monopolies are merely trying to protect their turf. And what they're doing, unfortunately, for the utilities, is they're taking an example in the past 
of, let's say, the Kodak Corporation, which decided to dig its heels in and protect its film process and ignore and push away digital cameras. And in the end, we all know what happened. One of the great American companies went out of business. So the utilities have to join and not fight against this because it's inevitable. I mean, we all watch the political process in Washington. And one of the things that I've heard, it's almost universally acknowledged, that, that one of the things that would grow the solar industry in the United States is a single national energy policy. But given the deficit and the debt in the United States at the national, state, and municipal levels, one, can we afford to do something like this? And if we can, how do we get the politicians in Washington to sort of figure that out and get after it? First of all, I would be very skeptical of us developing a national energy policy for a couple of reasons. One, it has to come out of Congress that appears to me to be incapable of deciding on anything. And if you see their current uh, rate of approval, it's below 10%. So that kind of confirms it. Second of all, every single major president, in, in my memory, back to Richard Nixon and before, have said we have to become energy independent, we have to move forward, etc. We have to get off foreign oil. Well, since we've been professing to do this and promising to do it, we've doubled our dependence on foreign oil. So the track record of getting a national policy is pretty dismal, whereas the track record of an equally industrial company, a country, Germany, using another technique, which is called the feed-in tariff, which is not a, subs uh, not a subsidy, which does not relate to the taxpayer, has proven beyond doubt to be absolutely successful and to do exactly what it said it would do, drop the price over time and drop the cost of the product over time. So I'd go with the track record. How are FITs different from renewable energy standards and renewable portfolio standards that we typically see fostering solar in the states? The feed-in tariff, first of all, is, is extremely simple. And there's a couple of things about it that make it, make it very different. First of all, if you were in Germany and you wanted to put a solar system on your home, today is Tuesday, so you would call your utility up, and with a little bit of luck, you'd have it by Monday or Tuesday on the roof and operating. It's a one-and-a-half-page document that needs to be filled out. In the United States, we have power purchase agreements. And I have a, I'm have a partner in a, a solar development company, and that's done with utilities and, and off-takers, etc. It's about 100 pages long. You need an accountant and a lawyer to read it with you. It's incredibly complex and will take months to implement, if you're lucky and you get all your ducks in line. So the, the level of complexity in the U.S. is manifold times greater than in Germany. And number two, which hasn't come to roost yet, but in a feed-in tariff, it sounds like common sense, but you are only paid for the power you produce. A power purchase agreement, basically, there's a financial agreement, there are tax credits up front, so the people who make the systems are paid up front, and there's no real incentive to make sure that the output is maintained properly. You're paid for the capacity of the unit, 
not for the output of the unit. So those are the two key things. And, and the third thing, which is the most important of all, is certainty. A feed-in tariff makes the cash flow certain. All other subsidies for solar are time-limited. Tax credits have a, they're going to expire in, in 2016 or this and that. And by the way, all fossil fuel subsidies are written, actually written in the tax code. So it's been an advantage that that is enormous over the years. And fossil fuel companies, namely oil and gas companies, have been receiving subsidies since 1894. And they're still not on their own. They can't get off the government dole after 100 years. So the, the thing about solar being on subsidies is a joke. So one of the questions I get, Peter, often, um, again, when you get a chance to check out my website, you'll see that this question comes up quite a bit. If feeding tariffs are such great ideas, why are Germany and the United Kingdom dialing their fit rebates back? The intuitive answer to that is something, something must be wrong if they're cutting it back. The fact is they're cutting it back because it's a success. They're cutting it back because that's exactly what it was designed to do. It was designed from the beginning to come down every year. The FIT payment comes down every year as the market grows. And where they intersect, when the market grows up and the price comes down, you reach a point where the actual retail price is higher than the feed tax, which happened in Germany this year. So the reason it's going down is because it's working as designed. So in your opinion, where do you think the biggest opposition to a fit in the United States comes from? Without question, it, it's from, you know, just the human condition of people don't like to change, you know, the status quo. Secondly, it is the utilities. And third is the fossil fuel industry that doesn't really want to see their revenues drop down. It's an age-old problem, and you know, I gave you an example of Kodak, another one of Polaroid, another one of the railroads. You know, they dig their heels in, and when you do that, innovation passes you by. So all those things are, are, are definite impediments. But, but if you could ask me to say one thing, I would say it's all the money trying to stop it. So the utilities and their fossil fuel allies don't want to change. And what they're going to do is put out as much information as they possibly can to slow this down. So how do we in the solar industry battle that? Well, the best way to do it is with is with a feed-in tariff, which is simple. And, and the best way to handle that is just with the facts. Because you have to understand, and it's changing everywhere else and when you read U.S. newspapers, it doesn't really appear to be changing very much at all. Whereas everywhere else in the world, it is changing. The United States is the only country in the world that has any newsprint that indicates a debate, for example, about global warming. Everyone else has accepted this. You know, this was first brought to Lyndon Johnson's attention when he was president. The data was sufficient to make a sound argument then. Now it's overwhelming. Same thing with solar. Solar is 
growing in all these countries, all around the world. There's above 80 feed-in tariffs around the world, and there's probably only 15, uh, you know, national policies or whatever around the world. So, so it is happening. It's just not happening in our country so that people can see it. So we need to get the word out more. It's a long answer to your question because it is happening. We're just not getting information out here. Tell me about the Principal Solar Institute, what your relationship with them is, and the paper that, you, that you've written, which, by the way, will be on our website later today. Well, I, I, I was introduced to some of the Principal Solar people when they came to, um, to a company that I'm involved in in order to buy one of our projects. So I met them, and uh, I started chatting with them, and I saw that they were trying to do some innovative things in solar. And as a result of that, we, you know, we continued the conversation and they asked me if I would be an advisor because of, you know, my background in technology and also project finance. So that's how we got started. And, uh, you know, I'd be more than happy to help them to, uh, get white papers out and articles out, which impacts exactly the answer to your previous question is how do we deal with the current situation? And the way we deal with it is through facts and real numbers. And hopefully at some point, the press and the coverage in this country will be equivalent to the press and the data everywhere else in the world where solar's growth is accepted and it's looked upon as a much different thing in other countries than it is here. We've been speaking with Peter Lynch about the need for feed and tariffs in the United States. Thanks, Peter. Sure. Not a problem. Thanks so much. This has been Solar Speaks, Solar Power World Magazine's podcast series that gives you the opportunity to hear from the industry's biggest newsmakers in their own words. I'm Frank Andorka, Editorial Director of Solar Power World Magazine. Until next time.